Good morning. Well, welcome to 2024. All right, well, let's uh, turn today to Psalm 139. No surprise, right? Psalm 139. Go ahead and turn there. That's going to be our text today. And I'm going to open in prayer. Our Father and our God, we do love you and we love our Savior. We never get tired of singing of him, talking of him, telling the old, old story of Jesus and his love. This is the message that we come back to week after week as we, as we live in this pagan world, as we seek to be lights to this world, bringing the light of your gospel to this world. When we gather together on the Lord's Day, this is the message we must have rehearsed for us again and again and again. The representation of your gospel. And we're thankful for the gift of music. That we can come together and unite our voices in declaration of that gospel. And now, Father, we ask you to draw near to us. Now in an act of worship we sit in readiness. With anticipation to obey, we sit in eagerness to hear your word to us. For that to take place, O oh Lord and God, we need you. We need your word to be preserved and to come to us in power. It requires, requires something no human being could ever supply. That is a gift of your Spirit. The empowerment of your Spirit. And we ask for that now. And we promise to thank you for doing so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Not so long ago... I was reading a story about a woman who struggled with depression. She was a middle-aged woman, self-professing Christian. Her written testimony was filled with many, many honest words that I'm certain I will never forget. She explained, Nobody in this world really knows me. A lot of people think they know me, but all they know is a persona, an image. They know what I do, they know where I live, they recognize the car I drive, but they don't know me. The fact is, that's even true of my own family members. To my husband, I'm an object for sexual release. To my children, I'm an unpaid servant. If I dropped off the planet tomorrow, any number of replacements could fulfill my role. No one knows me. Have you ever felt that way? It would really surprise me if you hadn't, because the fact of the matter is, it is, church, one of the deepest longings of the human heart to be known. Not by all people, but at the very least by one person. To be known, to be genuinely and thoroughly known, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. But is such a thing even possible? That someone might really know you, given the feverish pace that we live today in America, even in a place like St. Louis, can you ever, ever really experience being known? I mean, after all, to the doctor, you're an insurance number. To the editor, you're a subscriber. To the retailer, you're a consumer. To the manufacturer, you're a dealer. To the politician, you're a constituent. 
To the banker, you're a depositor. To the landlord, you're a tenant. To the mass mail advertiser, you're a resident. I don't think that you would deny, in fact, I don't think you can deny that ours is a culture moving inexorably towards greater and greater and greater expressions of deep depersonalization. And we wonder why we're bombarded with, with a culture, uh, cultural identity crisis where pronouns can switch as fast as my dog lunging for food that I dropped on the floor. You, my friends, are an email address. You're a Facebook friend. You're a Twitter, or whatever they're calling it today, an Instagram or Snapchat follower. Is it possible for you to be truly and completely and thoroughly known? This, my friends, is why Psalm 139 is in your Bible. Psalm 139 is a song about knowing. It's a song about God's thorough, exhaustive, comprehensive, and even unsettling awareness of you. Notice the opening lyrics to this song, verse 1. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. It speaks of something that has happened. Now, notice if you jump down to the very end of the song, the lyrics in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. It's something that the psalmist here, David, wants, wants to happen yet again. Search me. They are, you see, the bookends that frame this song. And as such, they signal to you the emphasis of the theme of the poetry in between. It begs the question, to what extent is God intimately acquainted with you? Have you ever thought about it? Ever even considered? Have you ever wondered about it? To what extent is God really and truly acquainted with you. Well, to begin with, my friends, notice that God knows you comprehensively. And David, well, he's happy about it for the most part. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. In case you're wondering, I'm reading from the New King James. You guys might have ESV or another version. Actually, here the idea is, you have known me because you have searched me. And here, friends, don't forget, he's speaking poetically. These are the lyrics to a song in that God doesn't need to go digging around for information that he doesn't presently have. He already knows everything, all things, David here, rather, is attributing to God human qualities. It's as if he's saying, God knows me, as though he has pried into the most secret corners of my being. And the language here, did you notice? It's so exceedingly personal. Pay attention to the repetition of words like, you, me, my. Look at it. O Lord, you have searched me and known. And it's really interesting, in the original text, it, it omits the me. It says, you have searched me and you know. That makes it a bit more pointed, doesn't it? You know my sitting down, and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Do you understand what we're talking about here? 
This, is, this isn't anything that is abstract or theoretical. This isn't something to put in a theological textbook. This here is not God's omniscience, his knowledge of all in general that has captured this hymn writer, David's heart. It is God's personal knowledge of him, of me, of you. So how comprehensively does God know you? David here employs a figure of speech referred to as a merism. I've talked about this literary device in my Sunday morning class. It is the mention of polar extremes so as to comprehend everything in between them. So notice the poles in verse 2. You know my sitting down and my rising up. In other words, when I rest and when I move, and by implication, everything in between. Notice the polls in verse 3. You comprehend my path and my lying down. In other words, when I move and when I rest, and by implication, everything in between. The point, you know everything I ever do. What's more, God knows everything you ever say, even before you say it. Verse 4, For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. How can this be? How can God know what I'm going to say before I even say it? Oh, friends, it's because his knowledge of you extends to your thoughts. Notice the second part of verse 2. You understand my thought afar off. And that little word afar can have a spatial quality. You may be in the heavens, Lord, and I'm on earth. That makes no difference to you. And this can have a temporal quality. You may have known before the foundation of the world what I would say today. My friends, have you ever blurted out something in the heat of the moment? Something that, would, that you would never ordinarily say? So much so that it even surprised yourself? Well, maybe that's just me. But here's the point. God is never, never surprised by what you say. He is never caught off guard by your words. Why? Because to Him, your thoughts are an open book. Have you ever realized this? That you never, ever have a private moment away from God? That you never have a confidential thought apart from God? Think about that. There is no secret chamber in your mind walled off from his access, no deflector shield to protect you, protect the most discreet nook and cranny in your mind from his penetrating scrutiny. There is no part of you that is hermetically sealed off from him. You may sign a confidentiality agreement with a counselor, but with all due respect, God does not honor it. There is no password that could ever block him. But thankfully, he sees all of your God-glorifying thoughts that no one else ever sees or even understands. But disturbingly, he sees all your soul-condemning thoughts that no one else could even imagine possible. God knows. He knows. It's not hidden from him. He knows better than you yourself know. He knows everything you do, everything you say, everything you think, including all the reasons why, all the motivations for, every single rationalization, every single self-deception. He knows. 
does that feel a bit intrusive? Invasive? Do you find that exasperating? Maybe it's because you're ashamed of what there is there to know. Listen, Job, in the book of Job, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. But in Job chapter 7, he has the very same frustration. He says here, Job chapter 7, starting in verse 17, What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me and and let me alone till I swallow my own saliva? Do you find that unsettling? You're not the only one. You can detect the ambivalence here in David himself in verse 5. You have hedged me behind and before. In other words, I can't escape God by turning back. He's behind me. I can't escape God by going forward. He's in front of me. I'm hedged in. I'm enclosed. I'm trapped. And at times, friends, you hate that sense of glossophobia, don't you? Because, like me, you want room to sin. I know this. I know this. It's the very same for me. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Now, now at this point, listen very carefully. In the Old Testament, each of these phrases are used both positively and negatively. For example, this phrase, hedged me in from behind and before, can mean you know me so intimately that I can always be certain that you care, that you will protect me, and that your presence will always surround me. That's not only beautiful, that's true. But it can also mean, your awareness of me is so intimate that I'll never be able to escape you. And this phrase, laid your hand upon me, it can mean, You will always secure blessing for me. But it can also mean I'll never be able to dodge your hand of chastisement. So how are we to take these phrases? Positively or negatively? Are these words to be a cause of comfort or a cause of dread? And the answer is yes. They're intended to be taken both ways. In other words, what you must understand is that there's always a measure of ambivalence in response to God's comprehensive knowledge of you. Always. Should you be terrified? Only if you're guilty. On the other hand, to realize that he knows you, that he has always known every single thing about you, including the deep, dark, secret things, and that he has loved you by giving up his only son to save you, knowing all that he does about you. And listen, God knows. He knows you completely. God knows. And that he has always known every one of your thoughts, your words, your actions, your motives. With, with a perfect clarity, evaluating them according to the standard of his perfect righteousness, he has all the evidence against you, against me, and as such we are deserving of his wrath, not his mercy. But since, but because of God's great love, I love that in Scripture, but... Because of God's great love, because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because God, by His grace, has enabled even me to believe on His Son. 
God has applied the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross to my account. He extended forgiveness to me and dismissed his case against me. Even though my sins are red as scarlet, they have been washed white as snow. God's perfect knowledge of me, of you, declares to us that this reality is settled in the heavens. I'll never do anything that takes him by surprise. He knows it all. Christ paid it all. And by grace, I'm trusting in Christ. And I am free. So what's your response to all of that? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Is this not a cause for unending praise? Verse 6. This is what David does. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Is that not a cause for unending worship and adoration? God knows. He knows you completely. So which is it, friends? Is it a cause for comfort or a cause of dread? His knowing. It all depends on the nature of your present relationship with this God who knows you comprehensively. To what extent is God intimately acquainted with you? First of all, first point, He knows you comprehensively. Second, He is with you inescapably. He is with you inescapably. It's one of the reasons he is ultimately or intimately acquainted with you. Notice verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? And then we have a parallel line here. Notice that. Or where can I flee from your presence? Interesting here, spirit is stated here in poetic parallel to God's presence. It implies, if you catch it, plurality within the Godhead anticipating the more fully developed doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. But what do these parallel questions assume? Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. Nowhere in all of creation is there a hiding place safely away from God. Now watch as David develops this, church. Drawing upon some potential locations where hypothetically escape from God might have been thought to be possible. Initially, he talks about the realm, up or down. What if I climb higher than God so that, I, so that God can't reach me? Verse 8, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. Okay? What if I descend so low? That, that, I, that can, I can lie beneath his grasp. What if I make my bed in Sheol, hell? Behold, you are there. Well, I guess he's there too. The point is, the vertical axis won't work. That's up and down. It's another merism. Don't you see? Everything up and down and everything in between, you can't go there. So what about the horizontal axis? Let's try that. That is east or west as a way of escape. It's another merism. Verse 9. If I take the wing, the wings of the morning. Now this phrase, wings of the morning, or, or some, some translations, dawn, was a commonly used figure of speech to describe, the ray, to describe the rays of the sun as they flash across the morning sky. And from what point on the compass does the sun rise? East. Will this work? Running away from God to the east? Up, down won't work. What about if I go east? Maybe west? Notice. And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. If you've looked at a map recently, read this from an Israelite geographic orientation what is the western border of the holy land the mediterranean sea 
the hymn writer here, David, is saying, if somehow I was able to cross that great expanse, the great body of water to the west, and make my home on that land, would that be enough to put me beyond God's grasp? Well, ask Jonah. He attempted that very thing. Did it work out for him? East, west, in either case, verse 10, even your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So church, the idea here is not that God will relentlessly pursue you wherever you go, but that He's already there when you get to wherever you're going. So up, down, anything in between, that won't work. East, west, anything in between, that won't work. But maybe there's still a better idea, huh? Remember when you were a child and you're in, your, in a dark room. You're in your dark room sleeping, laying in bed. And something happened to make a sound, maybe in the closet or outside or something. And it, it made you afraid. You would grab your covers and you'd pull them over your head, right? You thought you'd be safe, hidden away, unseen. You still do that? You say, don't be ridiculous, David. That's childish. But is it really any different? Listen, if I do this thing in the concealment of darkness, no one will see. Verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So, years ago, we took a family trip. And on that family trip, we, we met, we uh, stayed with an aunt and uncle. They were a great aunt and uncle of mine. My dad's middle name is Wilburn. It's a strange middle name, I know, but his middle name is Wilburn, and it was handed down from his dad, who had the middle name Wilburn. And it was handed down to my brother, who was stuck with that middle name as well, and much to my mom's uh, uh, chagrin, but... Uh, I think she even said she cried when she had to give it to him. Um, but we, we went around, this aunt, great aunt and uncle took us around to all these houses of relatives that I've never seen before in my life and I've never seen again. They are cousins and aunts and uncles of my father and his father. And they were in an area of Alabama where my grandfather grew up. And every, every time... We would go to the door. It was a whirlwind. We'd go to the door, knock on the door. They'd come up, open the door, and they'd look, one, one look at my dad, and they would say, Wilburn. And, and I was thinking to myself, I don't think my dad looks that much like my grandfather, but to them, they saw my grandfather. They've never really saw my dad before, at least grown up. And they looked at him and said, Wilburn. So we have a, a phrase that, that like captures that concept, right? Like father, like son. What do I mean? There's no substantial difference between the two. And that's exactly the way the Hebrew reads at the end of verse 12. Like darkness, like light. There's no substantial difference between the two to God. Meaning... God has no difference. There is no difference between the light and the dark to God. The writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 4 of Hebrews, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The great judge of all sees all. Now, Again, let me ask you, is David referring to this as a good thing? Something about which he rejoices? Are these positive affirmations about God? 
Wherever life might take me, I will never, ever be detached from Him. Or, is this intended to be something unnerving? David does, after all, speak about fleeing. He does speak about going away from. He does speak about hiding. Is he here? Wherever I might go, I can never escape him. Or, is it a source of comfort? Is this a source of comfort or a source of dread? Is this a cause for celebration or trepidation? The idea that your life entirely is enveloped in the presence of God. Again, it all depends upon the present nature of your relationship with this God who is everywhere you are. To what extent is God intimately acquainted with you? He is with you comprehensively. He is with you inescapably. Now thirdly, To illustrate the extent of his knowing you and being with you, David adds, my third point, he has designed you meticulously. He has designed you meticulously. Look at verse 13. For, that is as a further explanation of what has preceded, that God is everywhere present with you, here is an illustration for you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered or wove or knit me in my mother's womb. Oh, my dear friends, you exist not simply as a biological phenomenon. You are not an accident regardless of your parents' intention. You are instead a direct creation of great craftsmanship that began prior to your birth. These here are metaphors, wove, created, knitted together. They speak of God as the divine artist, the master weaver of a beautiful tapestry in which he himself has meticulously selected all the threads, the textures, and the colors, and then fashioned them together into a beautiful pattern that composes who you are. No general providence here. The color of your eyes, the color of your hair, the color of your skin, the kind of intelligence you possess, the uniqueness of your personality, your particular strengths and abilities and skills. And therefore, how should you respond to God's design of yourself? What does David do? I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We look in a mirror, and if we're happy with what we see, we praise ourselves, don't we? I will praise you, whether or not I have a thousand followers on social media, whether or not I'm a model on a magazine, uh, I will praise you. Why? Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. To be fearfully made, church, means that you are a cause for astonishment. To be wonderfully made means that you are a creation only God Himself could make. This was the very first, if you guys remember, we used to do catechism here at at Liberty This was the very first catechism question that we posed to those children here at Liberty. Some of of your kids. In fact, I see uh, Daniel was in our class, I remember. Susie and myself and some of you uh, uh, joined in and taught. Some of these kids are barely four years old and could barely talk, at least full sentences. Some of them, some of them, right, Daniel, talk too much. Um, Who made you, we would ask. We taught them the answer. God made me. We must have asked a thousand times. I think it's the one that they got all the time. Who made you? I remember one time, one of the kids, he, he was asked, Who made you? 
And he answered, God made me. And then he said, it was, it was cute, only God could make me. But that's exactly what David is saying here. Which is why now he says in the second half of verse 14, Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Now watch. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. It's a metaphor. Telling us that God's studio, as it were, is the dark and hidden interior of a mother's womb, a concealed place, but not concealed to God. Verse 16, Your eyes saw my substance yet being, being yet unformed. Even before my mother knew, you knew. But friends, God's meticulous design doesn't end with the formation of your existence, something that most people are very happy to acknowledge. Notice, notice that it includes his foreordination of your future. Look back at it in verse 16. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Not only has God brought you into being, he has, given, he has given to you, friends, an allotted time. Look at it. Put your eyes on the text. It's very important that you put your eyes on the text. The language here is out without ambiguity. He's not saying all of your days were pre-known. He's saying more than that. All of your days were preordained. They were fashioned. This is not general providence. This is meticulous providence. He has written your personal diary beforehand. Do you know what that means? It means despite the tragedies perpetrated by drunk drivers and suicide bombers and school shooters, brain tumors, miscarriages, and pandemics, tsunamis, and tornadoes, you are immortal until the day God has determined. It's why you don't have to be crippled in fear like so many Christians are. It means that church, that there is an absolutely nothing haphazard about your life for the simple reason God doesn't do haphazard. It means your life has purpose. It means today, you right here, sitting here this morning, is not an accident, but something that God Himself has scheduled for you. God's design for your life stretches from womb to tomb. You say, well, David, I don't deny that the Bible teaches this. And to that I say, good thing, because it does. But, but, but I, I just can't get my head around that. It's not that I won't get my head around it. It just seems to me to be beyond me. And of course, my dear friends, you're exactly right. It's beyond you. And that's now why what David's point is precisely. That this reality, notice, it's not so much to be understood as it is to be adored. Verse 17, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. That you yourself have crafted me in such intricate detail that before I was even a thought in my mama's mind, you scheduled each 24-hour period of my life. It defies my puny brain. It's an amazement that I'll never fully sort out. Now in the second part of verse 17. How great... Or vast is the sum of them. That is all the precious thoughts you had about me while still in the process of forming me. Verse 18. If I should count them, 
they would be more in number than the sand. And if that wasn't enough, he goes on, when I awake. Has he been sleeping? Oh, he's not talking about taking a nap here or waking up from that. To sleep is often employed in the Scriptures as a euphemism for death. Consequently, to awaken is the answer to death. To awaken is a euphemism for resurrection. Now church, if you're following his train of thought, this is profound. God has formulated your existence. He has foreordained all the days of your future, whether it's just one day, 100 days, or 100 years. But God's plan for you isn't just confined to this life. He's not done knowing you at the point of your death. At the end of your days, the end of your days will be answered by the great day, the day of resurrection. And you will find what you will find on that day when you awake. When I awake, I am still with you. Only in a way like you've never He's never been with you before. Womb to tomb and beyond. Let me ask you this. Is this good news for you? That after death you will stand face to face with your Creator. That after death you will stand face to face with your Judge. That after death you will stand before the One whose gift to you was life itself, one who allocated each and every single day that you've experienced, is this good news to you? Or is it terrifying to you? It all depends upon the present nature of your present relationship with this God who has designed you meticulously. He knows you comprehensively, He is with you inescapably, and He has designed you meticulously. So the point of all this? The point of all this. To God, you are not a statistical entity. To God, you are not a random number. To God, you are not a replaceable part. You are known. You are known by Him intimately. Now let me ask you, does this matter to you? Should it matter to you? Does it motivate you to some end? Should it motivate you to some end? In other words, ought there be forthcoming from you some kind of appropriate response? Let me suggest to your friends that that your response to this ought to be in keeping with David's response. How does he respond? In two ways. First way he responds, in fierce loyalty. This is the section of Scripture that a lot of people skip over. David responds in fierce loyalty. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Oh. I bet this raises some questions in your mind. I expect it might. Given the scope of what we're doing today and in the time, I may not be able to answer all of those questions, but it is a subject that I might return to someday or even in my Sunday morning class. It is what has been traditionally referred to as the imprecatory psalms. 
That said, what I do wish to do is ask you a couple of questions initially. Look, put your eyes on the text. You have to be in the text. How does David describe the people mentioned in these verses? Look at the text. Let the text convince you. How does David describe these people? The wicked, verse 19. The bloodthirsty, verse 19. They speak against God wickedly. Enemies who take your name in vain, verse 20. Those who hate, verse 21. Those who are in rebellion or rise up against you, verse 21. And once again, enemies, verse 22. In other words, would you concede by these descriptions that these are not good people? Not, nor, not nor moral people. Not ethical people. Not upstanding people. They're not even neutral people. And then the second question. With reference to whom are these people described as such? Listen. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies, take, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? These people are unashamed, open, blatant haters of God. More specifically, there are bloodthirsty, verse 19. There are blasphemers, verse 20. They are God-haters, verse 21. Why do I call your attention to this? So that you'll understand that this prayer for judgment is not driven by David's own self-interest. It's not driven by a desire for retaliation or retribution against those who have wounded him. It's driven by David's zeal for God's glory, God's name, God's honor, and God's fame. Oh, my friends, it's so much like David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who identifies so, so nearly with God and loves God so dearly that he feels so personally the offenses against God so that he single-handedly drives out the money changers from the temple motivated but by nothing but pure zeal for his Father's glory. Pure, righteous, holy, perfect zeal. And what I want to know is where do we see it today in Christian America? What we do see is where zeal is despised, don't we? Why does zeal make us so nervous? Well, it's because our pluralistic culture has done its job on us. So much so that we're, we're hesitant to even be definitive and absolute about anything. That it's really cool to be a bit ambiguous about everything. And let me say to you, my dear friends, with all due respect, it's the reason why we're losing the battle today. The early Christians understood this so much better than we do. That the only thing that can effectively counter the enemy in the battle for religious affections of people is our unrestrained zeal. There is a moral order in this universe that God created. And when a person sets himself up against it rigidly so as to promote injustice and unrighteousness and oppression, and thus seeks to mock and defy God in His glory, such a person becomes God's enemy. In fact, according to Psalm 5, watch, God hates them. You know why? Because you and I need to have the saying of Gandhi Shattered, removed from our Christianese. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Have you heard that? That's from Gandhi. Not according to Psalm 5. Not according to Psalm 11. Actually, several Psalms. And Esau, 
Not according to him either. Psalms 5 says, God hates them. Psalm 5, verse 5, The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. That doesn't make a great greeting card, does it? Now watch, watch with a perfect, holy, righteous, just hatred. You know, you know why you can't understand it? You know why? I can't understand it either. It's because we are not holy, we are not just, we are not righteous, and we're not perfect. Only on that great and final day will we be able to rejoice at the condemnation of the wicked. And the Bible tells us that we will. And here's the point. Because you love God and His glory more than anything else, brothers and sisters, by virtue of all that He is and has done for you in the Gospel, His enemies become your enemies. To love God and to hate evil are two sides of the same coin. They are mutually interpreting. The fact is, church, watch this now because this is true. Your love for God is measured by your holy hatred of evil. These two things go hand in hand. And and notice here that your love for God necessitates hatred for His adversaries. It is the fierceness, the intensity of ultimate loyalty. Given that He knows you comprehensively, He is with you inescapably. He has designed you meticulously. It's how you should respond to Him as David does in fierce loyalty. Friends, listen. Who God is forces you to take sides. You should respond to Him in fierce loyalty. Second, friends, You should respond to Him in humble surrender. If you have any sense, if you you were thinking that I was advocating previously in fierce loyalty, if you think I was advocating anything akin to self-righteousness, listen to this. You're going to get it set straight right now. You should respond to Him in humble surrender. Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, or test me, and know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Do you see what David is doing? He's not only going after the evil outside of himself, he faces what may indeed be the evil inside himself. Oh God, penetrate my outer shell. Dig down into the subterranean regions of my soul, the depths of my interior life. Go deeper and darker than my own eyes are capable of seeing. Search my thoughts. Weigh my motives. My conscience may feel clean, but I'm not wise enough to accurately discern my own thoughts and motives. So unlatch every lock, open every door, look underneath every cabinet, investigate every closet, every drawer, every compartment, every room, x-ray me, scan me for anything that brings pain to your holy heart. Do you see it? Because this man, David, loves God so deeply, because he's so fiercely loyal to God, there's something that this man hates as much, if not more, than the sin of other people. His own sin. His own sin. This is the humble surrender of himself. Point out anything in me that offends you. Why does he pray this? Well, let me ask you this. Why would you surrender yourself to a surgeon's scalpel for exploratory surgery? You would do so to this end, that if he finds anything threatening to your health, he is to excise it. He is to cut it out. 
Search me. Know me. Test me. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Here is a man who no longer is ambivalent. Here is a man who is no longer filled with conflicted feelings. A man who no longer dreads the God that knows him intimately. Why? Because he has resolved in humble surrender to follow this God who will do no less than to lead him to eternal life. Who is this God? Who is this Lord? My friends, in the unfolding of the biblical storyline, we have come to discover that the fullest revelation of this God occurs in the God-man, Jesus Christ. As the Son of God, Jesus is the one who knows everything about you. Peter says of him, Lord, you know all things. Jesus is the one who is never not present with you. I am with you always, he says to us as he ascends into heaven. Jesus is the one who has made you. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing nothing was made that has been made. And Jesus is the one who will affect your ultimate awakening. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. But Jesus is not only the divine Son, amazingly at the same time, He's fully human, a man. And as a man, the man, He of all things was fiercely loyal and humbly surrendered, both of which were never more powerfully displayed than on the cross. The Father searched Him and saw only our grievous ways. It was God who foreordained every hour of Christ's life. It is God who, just as David declares, awakened him from death. My dear friends, Jesus Christ is the one to follow if you desire the everlasting way, if you desire everlasting life. I don't know what you thought when you came here this morning, but despite what you may have believed, You are known. You are known. You are known not as an internet address. You are known today more intimately and thoroughly than you've ever before realized. You are known totally. You are known unerringly. You are known by God. Does this terrify you? Or does this comfort you? It all depends upon the nature of your present relationship with Him. In Jesus Christ, you can be known without fear. You can be known without dread. You can be known completely secure in God's love. Why? Because Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life in your place. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the third day for your justification. My dear friends, not only does God know you today, you can know Him. By embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know Him. This is eternal life. To know God and to know Jesus, His Son, He has sent. To be known and to know that's what you were made for. Would you pray with me, please? Bow your heads. Our Father, Lord, I know I have a lot of apologizing to people, probably because I went over to do. But Lord, you are infinitely greater than we have ever before, I mean, many of us conceived. And maybe, just maybe, oh Lord, for a lot of us here today, this isn't new material. I mean, theologically, we know this stuff. But maybe, Lord, maybe practically, we've forgotten it. 
and we lived as if it wasn't true. And we need to be reminded of it, that we are known by you. Father, there may be people here this morning for whom this is absolutely new. They've never ever thought about this before. I've got to imagine right now that in their minds, their hearts, and their hearts, they are flooded with a zillion questions and, and trying to connect all the dots. What does all of this mean? That you, Lord, are sovereign. That, your fa- that you, Father, are meticulous. What does that mean? That you have woven me together and that, 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 that I, right now, apart from sin, is exactly what you had in mind. That I'm nothing less than your masterpiece for which you are worthy of praise. Lord, please communicate to these folks the very simple message that you know them and they can know you in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who God, who is God, come in the flesh. We thank you for him, for his fierce loyalty to you, for his humble surrender that he took, that took him to the cross. You searched him, you knew him, you examined him, and you found our sin, that he was bearing it in our place, and that you, O Lord and God, have done that because you love us so. May we praise you for it. We love you and praise you and thank you today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.